Oh, for grace to trust him more. Praise God, he gives such grace. He is a worthy Savior, a generous God. Before we turn to the scripture this morning, we got a homework assignment. Everybody remember their homework? Uh-huh. I know what kind of students y'all were in school now. Romans 8, chapter, verses 1 to 4. Remember, we are memorizing Romans 8 together. Um, so who has memorized verses 1 to 4 for us and will recite it for us this morning? Come on now. Come on, because you raise your hand, we're going to clap for you, encourage you. So who we got this morning? I'm about to call on somebody? All right, go ahead, love. Come on, shorty. Y'all encourage Christy this morning. Come on, come on. Anybody else? Now that you've been made bold and you're, you're ready to go, you, you heard it rehearsed. Anybody else? Well, somebody else, Miss Carolyn, I see your hand. Oh, no, you were just moving. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, well maybe somebody give us George. Excellent. excellent. Encourage George. Come on. Come on. Amen. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. I love passing a church that don't need different translators. We got an ESV. We got, what you doing, brother? The NIV. Somebody got the CLT? A BLT? I mean, <laughs> praise God, man. Praise God. Well, next week, we're going we're gonna to recite verses 5 to 8 and someone to do all of 1 to 8, okay? So we're trying to get Romans 8 down in our hearts uh, to hide the word in that way. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. There are a couple of gentlemen and a gentleman and a lady who are passing out Bibles. Uh, so just hold your hand up, keep them up there, and they will bring you one. Uh, if you are visiting with us and you don't own a Bible, let this be our gift to you. Since there's one up front here. Uh, let this be our gift to you. Um, they're, they're pretty new Bibles. Take it, write your name in it, act like you bought it. Um, but also read it, enjoy it, hide it in your heart the way we hope to do as a church as well. Amen? All right, well, let me pray for us, and then let's focus on God's Word. Jesus, Jesus, how we trust you. We would like to think that we have proved you over and over. That is, we have trusted you over and over, and you have shown yourself over and over 
to be good, to be faithful, to be enough. And Lord, we realize that when it appears that you're not those things, as Michael testified, the problem's in us and our perception, not in you. In those moments, as much as every moment, we need more of you, more of your spirit, more of your grace, more of your presence, more of your power, more of your help. We need your help right now to hear God's word, to hear your word, to hear it clearly, to hear it with understanding, to hear it with joy, um, to hold fast to it and not to allow it to be snatched from our hearts by the birds of the air or choked out by weeds and hardship, but so that it bears fruit in our lives, 30, 60, 100-fold. Bless your word to our hearing, we pray. Bless us to believe. Bless us to prove you over and over by trusting in you. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes things seem to us to be really complex. We can be tangled up in the details and tangled in the dynamics that confuse us the more we investigate them. Life is like that when we view it from a human perspective and with human knowledge. Because we are limited creatures, well, our knowledge is limited too. We, we cannot figure everything out. So we sometimes have a hard time holding together various truths and competing information. Sometimes even our highest values seem to compete with each other, like love and justice. We value justice. We want to see righteousness prevail. We want wrongdoers punished so that their crimes are satisfied. We also want the punishment to fit the crime, and we want the punishment of one to be consistent in some way with the punishment of others. That's justice. But how can we get the balance right? That's the difficulty. We saw an example of that in the trial of Officer Amber Geiger. She was the woman who earned, entered the home, excuse me, a Botham Jean and shot him and killed him without cause. This week, a Dallas judge and jury returned a guilty verdict, and Ms. Geiger received a 10-year sentence. Then the brother of Botham John took the stand, Brant, and made moving comments extending forgiveness to Ms. Geiger. He said the only thing that his brother, Botham, really would have wanted was for Ms. Geiger to give her life to Christ. Then the younger brother asked for permission to hug the woman who had killed his brother. Was that justice? Was that mercy? Was that love? The mother of Botham, Miss Allison Jean, spoke after the trial and spoke at a memorial service, and this is what she said. 
Forgiveness for us as Christians is a healing for us. But as my husband said, there are consequences. It does not mean that everything else we have suffered has to go unnoticed because we forgive. We're leaving Dallas this week, but you all must live in Dallas and you all must try to make Dallas a better place. Was that justice? Was that mercy? Was it love? Can we tell where justice ended and mercy began? Can we tell which should have been weighted more and which less? Can we really compare the two since one was an individual level reaction and the other system level concern? Are they apples and oranges? From a human perspective, life can appear really complex. We can feel ourselves torn between multiple paths. Do we take this path or that path or some other path yet unknown? Should we act on this information or that information or some information we still don't have? Trying to figure it all out can feel like it drains you of life, energy, and peace. Well, did the writer of Ecclesiastes say, I applied my heart. This is the wisest man who ever lived. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. But you want to know something? We don't learn to live well by figuring out all the complexities of life. The secret to life and peace does not come by fancy theories or more and more information. In, in another sense, life is really rather simple. It's not all that complex. There are only two ways to live, beloved. The secret of life and peace is choosing that one right way to live. We pick up our series, Spirit-Filled Living, and the aim of the series is to convince us all of the necessity and the deep work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life and in the world. I've been trying to speak to maybe three groups of us in this series. One group who suspects that maybe we should be experiencing more of the Spirit than we do. Another group that suspects that maybe things have already gotten out of hand. We're doing too many things in the name of the Spirit. And I guess a fair number of you are like, I don't know what to think. So this is why we come to the Bible. And this is why we want to do this slow walk through Romans chapter 8, which will give us, help us to get the balance correct, not only when it comes to thinking about the Holy Spirit, but also when it comes to thinking about the broken places in our world, like the tragic and unjust death of Botham Jean and the various responses that many of you have felt. Sometimes responses that feel competing. This morning, we need to remember the deep work of the Holy Spirit. And that's this. The Holy Spirit gives us life and peace. It gives us life and peace. And we want to look at verses 5 to 8, and I want to ask you two questions. Number one, how are you living? And number two, how's that working out for you? How are you living? And how's that working out for you? Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. First question, how you living? I'm dating myself a little bit with that question. I grew up in the glory days of hip-hop. Some of y'all don't know nothing about that. Saw one of you brothers tweet the other day that you just been sleeping on Wu-Tang. I'm like, where you been? I mean, I grew up when Run DMC was making Kangos and Shell Told Adidas fashionable. When LL dropped radio and when he mopped the floor with Kool Mo D. Y'all don't even remember him, do you? <laughs> when Public Enemy put rap lyrics to rock riffs and invented basically conscious hip-hop. When Rakim just changed the lyrical game. Y'all don't know nothing about that. But back in the day, one of the questions that would sometimes be asked is, how you living? Now, it's an interesting question. Like a lot of things, it depends on the, its meaning depends on the context and the tone, right? You see somebody you ain't seen in a while, you say, oh, man, what's up? How you living, doc? And the word come back, oh, I'm living large, man, I'm living large, which meant he was doing rather well. <laughs> <laughs> or you could see somebody wilding, man, somebody just tripping, right? And, and you were like, man, how you living? Which is, as Ashley might say, you better get your life. <laughs> you better check yourself. But it's a question that frequently got asked. How are you living? And in one sense, I think that's what Paul is meditating on between verses 4 and 5. Look back in verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. He tells us that we have been saved through Christ in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he says this, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that word walk there is a metaphor for living. And Paul, is, his mind's been drawn to this notion of whether or not people are living according to the flesh or according to the spirit. And he picks that up in verse 5 with further explanation. So he says in verse 5 of Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And there we see in that verse that there are really only two ways that mankind can live. They can live according to the flesh, or they can live according to the Spirit of God. Those are the two ways to live. There aren't other ways. The Bible just divides humanity broadly into those two groups of people. People who live according to the flesh with their minds set on the flesh and people live, who live according to the spirit with their minds set on the spirit. A little phrase to live according to is, is to have your life controlled by something. To have your life determined by something. So the first group lives under the control of the, of the flesh. A flesh, again, is a, is a metaphor. It's not referring to our physical bodies. It's referring to our sin nature. It's referring to the corruptions that are in us as a consequence of sin. 
And all of us who are descendants of Adam and Eve, and that is all of us, we are born with a sinful nature. And that nature dominates and controls us unless something radically happens to give us a new nature. A fleshly life is an animalistic life, really. It is living below the level that God intends people to live. Now, the thing Paul brings out here is the issue of the mind. You notice there in verses 5 to 8, let your eyes run across those several verses. You'll see he mentions the, the mind being set on, being set on five times in these four verses. In other words, we can tell what is controlling our lives by considering what our minds are fixed on, what our minds are set on. Now, he's not talking about a passing thought or a fleeting thought. We we might use the word mindset. He's talking about our mindset here. What is the pattern of our thinking? What is the pattern of our affections? What is the pattern of our desires? And he says, you know that you are living according to the flesh if the pattern of your thinking, emotion, and desires is all about the things of the flesh. Now, if you're new to the Bibles, one of the rules I want to give you for reading your Bibles well is let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. So when you see a phrase like uh, the things of the flesh, and, and maybe it was like, well, what is that? Well, let the Bible define that in other passages of the Bible. So keep your finger in Romans chapter 8 and flip over to your right uh, a few pages and go over to Galatians chapter 5. For in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a list of the the evidences of the flesh, the the workings of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. This is what the Bible says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. That means they're obvious. (laughs) Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you want to know what setting your mind on things of the flesh looks like, it's setting your mind on the kinds of things listed here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And, and, and to our ears, some of these things sound, may sound quaint and old-fashioned, perhaps like they don't exist any longer. Like that word sexual immorality, for example. Uh, to many people, that sounds... Uh, sort of out of date and maybe even a little judgmental, particularly in the wake of the so-called sexual revolution. But sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. And it refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of sexual activity between a, a man and his wife, a husband and a wife. It's very applicable today. Or that word sorcery. We think of witches and wizards. Maybe Harry Potter. Will you stay out of my sermon? <laughs> Mary Harry Potter. No, you keep doing you. 
But, but the Greek word there, pharmakia, is related to the word pharmacy. It has in mind, perhaps, drugs and drug use. For in pagan worship, there was often the use of intoxicants, alcohol, and other kinds of drugs as a part of the worship. So setting the mind on the things of the flesh as it relates to sorcery, well, that might be thinking about that next hit, that next joint, the next bottle of wine. It's very applicable. Or, or that word orgies. We imagine when we hear that word, massive pagan celebrations with everyone laying all over the place and doing all manner of things. But quite frankly, setting your mind on the club or that house party where everyone is there for the next hookup or jump off, it's the same thing. The world's not changed. The Bible's still relevant. It's still telling us the truth about mankind. It's applicable today, and what it's identifying here for us is what is the pattern of our minds if it's set on the flesh and the things of the flesh? Are we controlled by the flesh? Or, in contrast, back in Romans 8 verse 5, or are we living according to the Spirit with our minds set on the things of the Spirit? Again, to live according to the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. As, as we said in our first sermon in the series, the, the Spirit is here, the, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person in the Trinity. He is fully God. He is a personal being. He has all the attributes of God. And we are meant now, notice this, to live with the Spirit, according to the Spirit, in fellowship with Him. Since He is our God, he ought to be the one controlling us. And just as with the flesh, there's one sign of being controlled by the Spirit. We, we have our minds set on the things of the Spirit. I should have told you to keep your finger in Galatians 5. Look back there with me again. Picking up in verse 22. For Paul does the same thing there. He's contrasting the flesh with the Spirit. And so he goes on now to tell us what the works of the Spirit are. And he writes in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's one of the most well-known passages in the Christian world. It's a beautiful description of the qualities of the Spirit of God when He produces them in our life. It's a beautiful description of what the Christian life ought to look like when it is controlled by the Spirit, when our minds are set on, fixed on, the things of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what should occupy the Christian's mind in the Christian's life. There are only two ways to live. And we can tell which way we are living just by noticing what we think about most. 
what our minds are set on. Now, I need you to understand something. When Paul describes those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit, he is not talking about two types of Christians. I think many Christians sort of have the Christian world or have the world of humanity divided up into sort of three parts. There there are people who are not Christians, and then there are so-called normal Christians, and then there are spiritual Christians. Uh, We sort of begin to think of the world, the Christian world, as a a life where there are some people who are like superheroes in Christ, and then there are the rest of us. That's not what Paul has in mind at all. Years ago, there was a campus ministry that created a track that they use in evangelism. Um, and in that track, they talked about what they call the carnal Christian. Carnal is another word that means flesh. And they try to distinguish between a carnal Christian and, 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 and a, a healthy Christian by saying the carnal Christian, if you imagine a throne, well, on that throne, that person is sitting there ruling their own lives. But, the, but the, the Christian Christian, well, the one who's on the throne is Jesus. And the burden of the track was to get these folks who were so-called carnal Christians be, to become sort of more fully submitted to the lordship of Christ. That's a category mistake. Paul is saying right here, there are only two ways to live. You either are a Christian or you're not. You're either living according to the spirit or you're living according to the flesh and, and not to get those things confused. Now, it's possible for some instances in our Christian lives that we feel our flesh at work. We have to keep putting it to death. The old man is still around. We must kill him. And it's possible for us to find ourselves taken up into some fleshly thing or another. But if we're Christians, that's not the pattern of our lives. That's not the framework of our lives. The Spirit, and what the Spirit calls us to, is what controls us. And so my question very simply is, how are you living? According to the flesh or according to the Spirit? And what does that mean for you about whether or not you're a Christian or you're still lost in your sins? Let me give you another pastoral note here. I am not now speaking to the person who is a Christian but struggles with assurance. This is not what Paul is talking about here. You believe in Christ, but you struggle with doubts. You believe in Christ, but you struggle with your weakness. You're plagued sometimes by questions of whether or not you're a Christian. This text really isn't addressing you. So you should not go away from this text with those questions aggravated. You should go away from this text thinking further about verses 3 and 4. That God has done in his son what the law could not do weakened by our flesh. He has sent his son into the world to, to, to sacrifice his son for our sins. And through faith in him alone, we are righteous with God. You think more about the gospel and what Christ has done for you, not about what your weaknesses are. But that's a different category than the one who may falsely be convincing themselves they're Christians when the pattern of their life, when the pattern of their thinking is contrary to Christ. If that's you, don't get offended this morning. Get attentive. Don't draw back 
feeling exposed, lean in feeling exposed. The Spirit is wanting to do a deep work in your life. He is wanting to change your entire heart. Let Him do that. Because the second question is really pertinent. How's life working out for you? Now that's a tricky question to ask because people living according to the flesh actually usually enjoy living according to the flesh. The flesh has its own pleasures. Don't be fooled. That's why it's seductive. But the pleasures are short-lived. The pleasures are not permanent. The pleasures, they, they bring your eye down to the immediate circumstance, to the immediate situation. Sin promises much, but it never delivers long-term. So the Bible answers the question for us in verses 6 to 8. The Bible sort of helps us get our eyes up off the immediacy of sinful pleasure and, and makes us ask the question that was asked in Psalm 73. What's the end of those persons? This verse brings us, as Michael read, into the sanctuary of God and makes us to look at human life from the vantage point of God. It gives us the long view, not the short, immediate view, and it it sort of focuses us on the consequences of these two ways of living. So verse 6 says this, to set the mind on on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Not only are there two ways to live, but there are two very different outcomes. Let's take the mindset on the flesh first. Paul says to, if we fix our thoughts there on the flesh, on our sinful fallen desires, on our love of fleshly earthly things, sinful things, then the consequence of that, the end point of that is death. Just two chapters earlier, Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. If you work for sin, it will pay you back in death. Now, at this point, it might be helpful to answer a very basic question. What is death? What is death? The Bible actually talks about two types of death. It talks, first of all, about a physical death. Physical death occurs when the body stops living. The brain stops functioning. The heart stops beating. Uh, life is no longer in the body. The body becomes a, a corpse. But most people fear physical death. Hebrews says that um, Christ has come to to set us free, those of us who all of our lives were held captives as slaves to the fear of death. But you know what, beloved? Physical death is actually the smallest part of death. It's a terrible, unnatural thing because we were not made to die. But it is not the worst form of death. The second kind of death the Bible talks about is spiritual death. Spiritual death refers to the soul's separation from the God who made it. Spiritual death comes before physical death. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God has put Adam and Eve in the garden and commanded that they should not eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells them in verse 17 that when they do that, they will die. In that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So death is God's idea. It's his curse. It's his judgment on a sinful world.
is God's judgment on a sinful world. And this spiritual death actually comes before physical death. So in Psalm 51, verse 5, David says there that he was born in iniquity. He was born in sin. He was shaped in iniquity. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that we were all spiritually dead uh, in our lives unless we are born again through faith in Christ. Revelation chapter 20 uh, pictures the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of Jesus Christ where those who have have died are are raised again for judgment and we're told that those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life who had died in their sins, then they die the second death, which is the permanent separation from the presence and grace and love of God. It's what we normally call hell. A life lived with the mind set on the flesh produces death, beloved, physically and spiritually. Here's the problem. Most people have been living in the flesh so long they don't know they're dead. They think it's normal. When I pastored in the Cayman Islands, we had a very missions-minded brother named Greg there led trips to a a developing part of the world that um, didn't have the gospel plentifully. And as those things go, he would always come back and we have him do a mission report. And he'd always have slides and pictures. He worked with a pastor who ran an orphanage and a school and, and, and preached in rural villages. Thank you, love. And, um, he came back, I'll never forget one little picture he showed us of a little boy. A little boy couldn't have been more than about three or four years old. Adorable little boy, big round eyes, you know, somewhat puffy cheek, but kind of emaciated body. And he says, this little boy is uh, an orphan. Um, mom died to AIDS. He has AIDS. And he has malaria. And he's the happiest little boy we met in our entire mission trip. And then Greg said something that I don't, I don't know that I'll forget if the Lord gives me life. That's when Greg said he's been sick so long with AIDS and malaria, he doesn't know any difference. That's what sin's like. You be sick so long with it, and life lived according to the flesh. And we don't know we're dead. We don't know we're sick. We don't know that we're in danger of a second death, a final death in God's judgment. But here's the good news, beloved. Or no, let me give you a little bit more bad news. The Bible explains why a life lived according to the flesh, with the mind set on the flesh, must end in death. Explains it there in verses 7 to 8. Uh, of Romans chapter 8. Look there, it says, for, so again, he's still explaining the reasoning, for the mind that is set on the flesh is, number one, hostile to God. Number two, it does not submit to God's law. Number three, indeed, it cannot. And number four, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see how the dominoes are falling. As long as a person's life is dominated by a mind set on sinfulness, they are at war with God. That's what it means to have a mind hostile to God. They're angry with God. They they are antagonistic toward God. Or they may say, I'm not angry or antagonistic toward God. I just don't care about God. Exactly. It's a hostile mind. 
There's strife between them and God. And, and if a person is hostile to God, then it makes sense that they, they cannot obey God's law, can they? But it's worse than that. We're powerless to. We're powerless to. The text says, indeed cannot. So the problem with man is he is both unwilling and unable to do anything that, notice, ultimately pleases God because of his sin. It's a desperate condition, and it always ends in death unless it's cured, unless it's remedied by the gospel. What pleases God is the life that God commands. And the person who cannot and will not live that life cannot please God. In the final judgment, they will be cast away from the presence of God into eternal damnation and judgment. This is how things work out with life according to the flesh. How are you living? How's that working out? Are you looking to the end? Or are you just thinking about the immediate? Look to the end, beloved. See the warning in the Bible. And hear now a call to something much better. There's another way to live entirely. Notice it back in verse 6. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I love the way my brother Ray Ortland comments on this paragraph. He says, the difference is not between a little more Christianity and a little less. The difference is between life and death. That's what we're talking about in this paragraph, life and death and a defining difference. And what God holds out to us this morning, beloved, is life. He warns us about death so that we will see it for what it is, and then he calls us now to life, life according to the Spirit and the Spirit who gives life and peace. And just as with death, there are two ways that the Bible talks about life. There's physical life. When the heart beats and the mind works and there's vitality and movement in the body, but there's also spiritual life. And people confuse the physical life with the spiritual life. They think that just because they're alive and they put together a few thoughts, they are somehow, by virtue of their own mind and their own thinking, alive spiritually. This is the problem with people who say they're spiritual but not religious. Well, how can you be spiritual unless you belong to the religion of Jesus Christ by which we receive the Spirit? The spiritual life is another way of talking about eternal life or, if you like, being born again. The essence of being a Christian is to have the life of God in our souls. That's what it is to be a Christian. To receive God's spirit, his life-giving spirit, and have the spirit to live in us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give us now a new life, not just a better life, not just a little more life, not a tidied up life, but a whole new life. It's a new category of life, a new kind of life, a, a spiritual, and eternal, and abundant, and abiding life that comes only through fellowship with God. You know that classic passage in John 3 where Jesus is chilling with the disciples at night. Jewish leader named Nicodemus, he sneaks away from his crew, comes to Jesus with a question. Jesus says, you cannot enter the, the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Verse 3, Nicodemus, that's what Jesus says in verse 3, verse 4, Nicodemus is a little puzzled. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? Nicodemus is thinking about physical life. Jesus now explains, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Lord said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit blows through the world wherever it wishes to go, invisible like the wind, but its effect is felt because it gives life wherever he goes. To all who believe on Jesus Christ. And this is where the late night television commercial says, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Notice this. The Holy Spirit doesn't simply give us the opposite of the flesh. The flesh gives death. The spirit gives life. No, 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 no. With God, you always get so much more. With the Holy Spirit, there is life plus peace. Peace lies in contrast to the mind that's hostile to God. Life in the Spirit is marked by peace with God. And not only that, but peace with ourselves and peace with the world. Behind this word peace is a whole lot of Old Testament theology. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament normally used for peace is shalom. In the Old Testament, peace or shalom refers not only to tranquility and, and personal calmness, but, but peace is also connected with mishpat. That's the word justice. I'm going somewhere. Y'all stay with me. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 19, peace, truth, and justice are used as synonyms in that passage as interchangeable terms. Peace has a content, specifically justice and truth. Peace involves relationships that are ordered in equity and fairness. So Psalm 85 verse 10 says, righteousness and peace shall kiss. Isaiah 32 17 says, peace is the effect of righteousness. Or as the Latin Vulgate translates it, I like this, peace is the work of justice. As one biblical scholar puts it, In this, we see a profound theological sense to peace, which is far beyond the simple idea of the ending of war or the absence of conflict. Indeed, peace is not seen as tranquility and order, but rather as the deep commitment to the work of justice. The protest phase, no justice, no peace, actually has biblical roots. Here's what we should not miss. All of this, life and peace, with its inclusion of truth, justice, righteousness, all of that is included in the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. This is our life if we are Christians. To think this way. If we are born of the Spirit through the gospel, our life is not to merely isolate one aspect of the gospel and to think only on that thing, say forgiveness or say justice. Our call, our birthright is to have a mind with the whole law of God written on it so that we think about the whole counsel of God and we bring the whole counsel of God into every situation. 
so that we lay hold to forgiveness and we lay hold to justice. We lay hold to peace and we lay hold to mercy and all that God has given us in Christ. Now let's go back to Botham Jean and the various responses following the trial. I think that situation and the reactions it provoked is really a, a cry for the deep work of the Holy Spirit. It's a cry for God the Holy Spirit to show up and to do all that we know God can and will do. Not, not in part, not, not in bits, but we want to see it all revealed. I mean, Botham Jean was once physically alive. Not only that, he, was a, he is a brother in the Lord. He is spiritually alive. He's a Christian. He's one of us if we're Christ. The taking of his life was an act that opposed the work of the Spirit in the world. And Brandt, his little brother, his offering of forgiveness, his individual act of forgiveness, and Allison, his mother, her call for justice and change, those two are acts of the Spirit at the same time in different people, giving us a, a more full composite of what it means to live life in the Spirit. It is not the privilege one aspect of the gospel. It is to call for the whole gospel to be brought to bear on a whole situation. Amen. The Spirit gives that peace which does not come at the expense of justice, but that peace that comes through justice, through righteousness, through equity, through truth. Well, here's the thing. If we're people who insist on justice without forgiveness, or think of forgiveness and peace without justice, we're not nearly as filled with the Spirit as we ought to be with such thinking. We may be setting our minds on the flesh, or at least a fleshly way of thinking about spiritual things. To quote Ray Ortland once again, he says this, without the Holy Spirit, notice this now, without the Holy Spirit, our prejudices resist God in mistaken self-protection. Our prejudices resist God in mistaken self-protection. In other words, the things that we are biased to, let's, let's insert either forgiveness or justice. If we are biased to one or those other things, those prejudices will actually make us resistant to other parts of God's work. And in that resistance, we will feel ourselves protecting ourselves. So the person who lays only hold to forgiveness, resisting the call to justice, feels a kind of protection and a kind of coping in that because they don't want to get caught up in all that justice stuff. And the person who feels a bias towards justice and is suspicious and resistant to the call to forgiveness feels a kind of uh, protection in that because they know over and over and over again, black folk have forgiven and it hasn't worked out to justice. There's a self-protection in that that needs to be recognized in part as resistance to God and the whole counsel of God. Ortland goes on. The flesh may love God in its way, but the flesh loves God on its own terms 
not on God's terms. This is why the flesh is a whole nother religion and incompatible with Christianity. And this is why we have to be careful as God's people, as people whose minds are meant to be set on the things of the Spirit, to live a Spirit-filled life in the fullest sense, we have to be careful that we don't slip into loving God on our own terms, preferring this biblical thing over that biblical thing. We have to love God on His terms, trying, as I've been saying, to embrace all that God calls us to in every situation. It's a high calling, beloved. And that's why we need the Spirit. That's what we need in the aftermath of Botham Jean's murder trial. That's what we need all the time at all places. We need to be so filled with the Spirit of God that we become the life and peace people. Not cheap peace, but that peace that works through justice. And we need to be the life-giving people. Because we're the people who have believed and been entrusted with the gospel. We bear witness to redemption and also to righteousness. We need to be the people who feel all the things, but then react with all the truth. That will be the deep work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, individually and corporately. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can join us in that deep work of the Spirit. God has sent His Son to die for your sins. He paid the penalty of death for you personally. And God raised Him from the grave three days later to show that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To prove to the world that he had accepted his son's sacrifice on our behalf and to say to the world, now come get life and peace in my son. You can have that. Life and peace. If you would turn from the flesh and sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the only God and the only Savior, personally. Trust him and live, live filled with the Spirit for the glory of God. Amen. You had a question? Let's pray together.